Good evening and welcome to tonight's meeting of Climate One, hosted by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. My name is Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One. Climate One is a leadership dialogue on energy, economy, and the environment. And this program is graciously underwritten by the Climate Works Foundation. It's my pleasure to introduce Tim Flannery, chairman of the Copenhagen Climate Council and author of Now or Never, Why We Must Act Now to End Climate Change and Create a Sustainable Future. Dr. Flannery is an internationally acclaimed scientist, explorer, and conservationist. Along with Al Gore, James Hansen, James Lovelock, Crispin Tickle, he is a judge for Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Earth Challenge. In 2007, he was named Australian of the Year, and his previous book, The Weathermakers, was a national and international bestseller translated into 24 languages. Please join me in welcoming Tim Flannery. Thank you very much for that, and uh, um, thank you all for being here this evening. I must say, hearing that list of forthcoming speakers, I feel a bit humbled. Uh, Andre Agassi, I don't know whether I can compete against that, but anyway. <laughs> but, um, but look, it is, I think tonight is, um, it is an important occasion in a sense in that we are at a, at a particular moment in history where uh, within a few months we will have some sense at least about what this new climate treaty will be like. We may not have all the answers at Copenhagen, but uh, I think that we will have, have, uh, have some sense. And, of course, what, what is decided at Copenhagen and through the months following that will have a profound impact, I think, upon our lives and upon the future of the planet. Um, you know, if we fail to agree and greenhouse gases continue to build up in our atmosphere uh, uh, you know, through uh, the early decades of this century, you know, 10 million years from now, people will be able to read about it in the rocks. You know, it, it's that profound an impact upon the world that we live in. And in some ways, that's why I chose the title for this book. I know it sounds a little bit dramatic, calling it Now or Never. In fact, it's a bit of inflation to call it a book, to be honest with you. It's pretty slender. It's more like a, a 19th century tract. You know the sort of tracts that people would publish 100 or 200 years ago to argue against the institution of slavery or to argue for labour reform or whatever. Well, I, I, just, I felt that this was the time when a tract on climate change and the importance of the moment was really essential. So I, I tried to encapsulate in 20,000 words why this particular moment in time is absolutely critical. As chair of the Copenhagen Climate Council, I've been following the, the international negotiations uh, fairly closely and we've been trying to move uh, our, our business group and, and, and scientists and uh, policy people, trying to strengthen the Danish government in their position of holding the bully pulpit through those, those negotiations and also to move our governments ahead and to give them confidence that the, the voice of business is really on the side of brokering a global treaty. And as part of that work, we held a... Uh, a World Business Summit in May this year in Copenhagen. We had 800 CEOs of leading companies there. It was one of the biggest meetings of uh, uh, business meetings dealing with climate that's uh, been held so far. And as a result of that meeting, uh, Ban Ki-moon, uh, UN Secretary-General, asked our council to play a role in, uh, in the UN Climate Week in September, just past. And that was an interesting moment because we had 100 heads of government at that meeting, you know, for the first time ever, about half of the world's uh, leaders, political leaders, along with a number of very influential business people. And the message uh, that was, uh, I think, received there by the politicians was a very clear one, um, that business wanted this resolved. Even the big energy polluters, even the Duke Energies of the world, the Alcoas of the world, the China Power Internationals of the world wanted to see a resolution to this problem. And all of that is very positive. And if I'd been speaking to you immediately after that Climate Week event, I think I would have uh, been flushed with optimism at the outcome uh, there and the hope that that may translate into a successful treaty in December in Copenhagen. Unfortunately, a number of things have happened since then that have made the prospect of agreement of a treaty at Copenhagen much less likely than even it was... Uh, uh, one month ago. And this is such a dynamic and fluid space, it is very difficult to make predictions about what will happen or will, what will not. 
but it's probably worth just reflecting on the sort of things that have happened in the last few weeks uh, to give us a sense of what we can really expect from uh, the Copenhagen meeting and perhaps what, uh, what may transpire in the months following that. And it's important to understand that that Copenhagen meeting, while it's a, it's a diacritical moment in time, it's an incredibly important moment in time, the fact is that the Danish government will have the bully pulpit for 12 months after that, up until uh, the following December. So it is theoretically possible that even if we fail to reach agreement in Copenhagen, that a meeting will be reconvened six months after that, at which the parties can come together and agree something uh, more substantial. Uh, so that, that, that it's just an important thing to keep in mind as we come towards this Copenhagen meeting because I think there's a general perception out there in the, in the public's mind that it's those two weeks of negotiation and that's all. That, thankfully, that's not the case. Um, in terms of those two weeks, the timing has been pretty right for the Europeans. They, they got themselves sorted out over the last 12 months or so. The timing's increasingly right for places like China and India but there's one major payer where the timing is terrible, and that is this country here, the United States. And part of the reason the timing of the Copenhagen meeting is terrible for this country is that domestic politics has taken up so much of the President's energy and time, quite frankly, that uh, progress of the key legislation that represents this country's bona fides at that meeting has been very slow in materialising. Of course, that... that key piece of legislation is the cap-and-trade legislation, the Waxman-Markey bill and now the, the Kerry-Graham uh, bill through the Senate. And that is particularly important because a cap-and-trade system gives a country, it's self-evident, gives it a cap, yeah? So you commit to a total amount of emissions. And when you come to these, these global meetings, it's all very well to have fine words or even regulation that r limits your... Uh, greenhouse gases in one sector of the economy or, or another. But what is really required is a commitment to an overall cap because that's, that is the sort of bargaining chip that, that countries can compare directly, see uh, whether, whether the, uh, what the sort of uh, level of burden various countries are taking up actually amounts to. The Waxman-Markey legislation is a really... Uh, well, I should... <laughs> From the outside, it looks very good. I know there is a lot of environmentalists here in, in, in the US who think that there has been far too many compromises made. But could I just say that the, the uh, cap-and-trade legislation is it's not the be-all and end-all and was never meant to be, but it is a critical element in any country's approach to this. And what is really important is actually the cap. And, and whether permits are given away or, or whatever, as long as that cap can actually be realised... That's the most important thing about that piece of legislation. And what those bills will do in this country is, you know, for the first time ever, we'll see emissions peak for the United States around about 2015, 2016. And that is, um, that is what's required, having the emissions peak and then decline, even if the, the slope appears to be too slow on the other side, at least we will have started uh, a, a period of emissions decline and we'll be imposing an increasing burden on the polluters. And I think that that will make all the difference. My gut feeling uh, for the way this, this will play out is that once there is a, a fixed price on carbon, once we understand that there's a price, uh, we will precipitate this technological revolution which will go far more swiftly than most of us appreciate. And we've seen that with mobile phones, we've seen it with the internet. You know, I think we all underestimated the speed at which these technologies would be deployed, and I'm convinced we'll see it with the renewable energy, the clean tech uh, uh, technologies that will follow on from um, uh, from a global deal and bills like the cap and trade bill here in this country. I'd like to just reflect a little bit on what will happen if the cap and trade bill here doesn't pass or is very slow. Um, coming from Australia, the consequences of either of those uh, outcomes is very stark for us. Australia is the world's, world's largest coal exporter. We have a Conservative Party that was every bit as conservative as the Bush government. They're now in opposition, thank heavens. But they're still there and they are still influential. And they are desperately trying 
to slow down the passage of our own legislation because they uh, realise that the longer this goes on and um, if, we do, if they can delay it beyond the Copenhagen meeting, some of the political urgency may go out of the issue and they'll be able to fa force even more compromises. And their big, big trump card is the possibility that the US may not pass its own cap-and-trade legislation. And I can tell you that if that happens, if there is no bill here in, in the States, then Australia won't have a bill, Canada won't have a bill, and there's probably numerous other countries that will be in the same boat. And that is a dramatic step backwards because Australia now has ratified the Kyoto Protocol. We're bound by a cap. And for us not to have a cap in the next emission, uh, the, the next emissions period or the next uh, treaty period along with Canada would be a dramatic step backwards and I think uh, could lead to the unravelling of our intent to try to uh, cap global emissions. I'm often, it, it's often the perception that the developing countries are the big problem here, that the Chinas and the Indias of the world where emissions are, are still growing quickly uh, are, are a major problem. I really don't believe that's any longer the case. Um, we have a number of East and South Asian councillors on our Copenhagen Climate Council and we're fairly plugged into what's happening in, in, particularly in China. And I think there that that country has really turned a very profound corner. And the fundamental insight that's occurred to the Chinese government, I think, in this regard is that environmental degradation and climate change represents a threat to the tenure of the Communist Party itself. And that is because uh, in China, usually threats to the central government come from the regions, come from people who uh, have uh, deep dissatisfactions, and that leads to a revolution and change of government. The triggers in China for, uh, for revolutionary change is represented by uh, environmental catastrophes, water shortages and climate change are huge. So the Chinese government is now moving quite quickly, uh, I think, to address climate change. The centrepiece of their policy is, is the new five-year plan, Hu Jintao's five-year plan, which is called Harmonious Society. And the key innovation in that plan is to reward Chinese bureaucrats in a different way to the way they've been rewarded before. Um, up to now, Chinese bureaucrats have been rewarded really for the economic development that the countries, that, that occurs under their bit of the country, their province or their jurisdiction. Um, under harmonious society, they'll be rewarded for three things. It's really genuine triple bottom line accounting. They'll be rewarded for economic performance, for environmental performance, and for social outcomes, for social harmony. And as that policy beds in, I think we'll start seeing dramatic changes in China. But even before that happens, there's a host of regulations and a host of changes occurring in China that is really prepositioning them to be... Uh, very to uh, really be the predominant power in the new clean tech econ economy that will emerge within the next few decades. They are building the world's biggest wind farm, the world's biggest photovoltaic array. Um, they're five years ahead of their own plans for decommissioning the dirtiest and most inefficient of their coal-fired power plants. They're seeking to double their nuclear energy capacity in the next uh, decade or so. Um, they are moving in lots of different ways um, uh, to, to, to clean up their act. You've only got to go to Beijing these days and see that post-Olympics the air actually is cleaner. And that's in part because Beijing has Euro 4 standards for motor vehicles these days. That's better standards than you have anywhere in this country. Um, so things are, things are moving there. And, and in terms of investments, they are, they are um, buying up uh, clean tech all around the world tech opportunities all around the world. I know, I think it's the Chengdu Technology Park is the one I had a look at um, earlier in the year. They've just been given $1.5 billion by the central government to buy up early stage uh, clean tech opportunities. So China is moving. The big problem is that we in the developed world aren't moving. The fact that China's moving doesn't mean that China will accept a cap on its emissions under a treaty. Uh, in Copenhagen. In fact, I think that's extremely unlikely. What's much more likely to happen is that the Chinese government will agree to a sort of a, a national schedules approach where they will list a series of their initiatives which will add up to some pre-agreed figure, some pre-agreed amount of emissions reduction, and that will put them on track for their emissions to peak, we hope, in the, the treaty period after this one, so around 2020 or soon after.
So that's the sort of, I guess, the shape of the new treaty as I, as I see it will be hopefully some sort of agreement among developed countries, this is the ideal outcome, uh, to cap their emissions for the big developing countries, China and India, to agree to um, uh, schedules, uh, national schedules of actions which will preposition them for a cap uh, a decade or so from now and then hopefully in the decade following that uh, the poorest countries uh, to come on board and cap their emissions. An agreement in Copenhagen is going to be about a lot more though than just emissions reduction. There is the issue of um, somehow compensating the poorest people on our planet uh, for uh, the damage that, that the greenhouse gases are doing to them. After all, those people gained no benefit at all from the Industrial Revolution. Um, we've taken all of the benefit from that. All they get is the bad consequences. So it shouldn't surprise us when countries in Africa band together and demand $60, $69 billion a year for adaptation funding for the African countries. Sounds like a lot of money, but it is actually the cost of a global treaty in many ways. And we shouldn't forget that the developed world has been promising those developing countries substantial funding ever since the Rio Earth Summit of 1992. And again and again we've defaulted on our promise to provide that sort of funding. So in some ways uh, the Copenhagen meeting is a real litmus test of our bona fides. It's being seen that way very much by some of the developing countries around the world. There's going to have to be provisions for uh, tech transfer, for technological transfer from developed countries to less developed countries. It's clear there's going to have to be provisions for proper accountability and accounting. We're going to have to actually have a treaty mechanism that works, not like the Kyoto Protocol that was grossly underfunded and is creaking and terrible, terrible sort of a, uh, a bureaucracy to have to work within. Something much better is going to have to be built and paid for um, as a result of these negotiations. As I sit around and look at those negotiations, you know, what I see all too often is people who imagine that they're negotiating just another environmental treaty. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, this new treaty is going to go to the very, the very heart, really, of our, our, of our economies and our societies and our environments. It's, it is, you know, what we're seeing with Copenhagen is probably the most comprehensive and protracted set of diplomatic negotiations that's happened on our planet. I mean, I know there's been some very protracted negotiations around trade and so forth, but this is such a comprehensive set of negotiations and at such high level, and now 15 years on from the, the establishment of the treaty is really way, way up there. And I guess my biggest fear is that if people just see this as, as an environmental treaty, or principally as an environmental treaty, there is a fairly significant chance that the negotiations will fail. If you saw it, though, as the most significant set of diplomatic negotiations uh, that, that, that the world had undertaken, you may have a different view because when diplomacy fails among us humans, conflict quite often follows and the triggers for conflict that are inherent in the climate issue are just, they're everywhere. You know, there, is, there is issues of food security, of water security, of mass migration, of political stability, any one of which could lead to conflict. And I just hope that when we get to December, uh, December 18 in Copenhagen, that is upmost in the minds of the negotiators because uh, if we do have a failure of negotiation, a catastrophic one that doesn't allow us to broker a treaty in the months following, um, conflict may not come that year, it may not come that decade, it may, may take longer than that, but we're laying the groundwork for the destruction of everything we've built up really in, in, in our global civilization since the end of the Second World War. And that, I think, would be a disaster. So that's why I've been working um, for the last three years on these negotiations and trying to strengthen the Danish government and trying to get other governments, such as the Australian government, New Zealand government, and so forth, the Chinese government, to recognise the importance of these negotiations. Um, I wish I could report more progress, but as I say, um, it all hangs in the balance at the moment. Um, I think we are far from guaranteed a satisfactory outcome and that's why the book's called Now or Never. The next couple of months really, really are important. And I think having rambled on for that long, I'm going to stop and sit down and um, 
take some questions. Thank you very much. Our thanks to Tim Flannery, chair of the Copenhagen Climate Council, for his comments today here at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we have a number of questions, Dr. Flannery. So um, among the first are, uh, you suggest we're between a tipping point and a point of no return regarding the concentration of greenhouse gases. Where does that leave us? And, and a related question is, what do you think should be the target level? Do you agree with Dr. James Hansen that 350 should be the, the target? We're now at 390. Sure. Look, I should just explain what a tipping point is and what a point of no return is. Yeah. Um, and the best analogy that I can produce for that sort, of, that sort of equation is to imagine you're a person who's taken a lethal dose of poison. Yeah? It doesn't kill you immediately that you take it, but you have passed a tipping point of sorts by putting that in your mouth. You know? um, the, the point of no return comes when that poison has become distributed through your body and, 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 and destroyed your vital organs. Yeah? Um, and the climate system's a bit the same. You know, we, we reach the tipping point when we produce enough greenhouse gas to potentially heat the world to a point uh, where, it would, where the climate system would just continue progressing towards an ice-free planet no matter what we did. Um, but the heat has to actually be distributed around the world into the oceans and so forth um, before we reach the point of no return. So James Hansen argues that we, we passed the tipping point in the 1990s sometime that will probably, and this is paraphrasing, a lot of, you know, caution around the science, but paraphrasing it, and that we'll probably hit the point of no return before 2050. So we've got a limited period of time to reduce our emissions and also to get some of the gas out of the air, which we need to do. Um, if 350 parts per million is where we need to get back down to, we have got a titanic job ahead of us. It's not an impossible job, but it is just huge. And to give you a sense of how big that job is, um, we would have to decommission or retrofit every coal-fired power plant, conventional coal-fired power plant on the planet by 2030 to achieve it. Yeah? And that is conceivable. We could do it, you know, retrofit it with carbon capture and storage. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So it's conceivable, but it is the sort of job that a world could only really do on a war footing. So um, if James Hansen's right, um, we, are, we are tackling this at the very last moment, in my view. Well, let's talk a little bit then about the mechanisms to, to move toward those, toward, toward that goal of 350. Uh, you write that the, the G20 group is, is more inclusive than, than uh, the G8 and therefore uh, better positioned to broker a global climate deal. And do you think that maybe the G20 might be the forum if the UN process is kind of grinding down and, and, and a stalemate, might the rich countries kind of take the ball and, and you seem to be optimistic about the G20? Yeah, look, I am. I think that the economic um, downturn did us a couple of favours. I know it's been horrendous, but it actually did us two favours. One is it actually reduced emissions by about 3%, something on that order, which bought us a little bit of time. It's the worst possible way to, save, to solve the climate problem, you know, by putting people out of work, but that's what the world did. Um, so there, there's, there's that aspect to it. But the other thing that really changed was that it, the, the economic crisis taught us how to work together as a species. In, in some areas. So we've had reserve bankers of the world come together to discuss the problem, really, you know, for the first time in a substantial way. We had um, the G20 take over from the G8 because we needed that extra heft and that extra breadth. And the G20 is fantastic. I think it represents something like two-thirds of the world's people and 90% of the world's economic activity. So it's a very, very powerful group. Uh, at the moment, it's, its focus is principally economic, but I don't think it's inconceivable that it, would, uh, it will shift to include the climate negotiations. In fact, we saw in Pittsburgh here right. uh, some discussion of the climate issue under that rubric of the, you know, the, the economic environment. I hope that it will move forward. I'm not, I'm not sure that that will happen at Copenhagen. Um, an even more interesting dynamic at Copenhagen may be some broad agreement between China and the United States because between those two countries you have 40, I think it's 40% of the world's emissions and uh, a substantial part of the population and economic activity. So just to press a little bit on that, do you think the UN process still has some legs, or is, if that doesn't really deliver the goods in, in Copenhagen, would you, you know, what will rise out of that? Should the G20 pick up the ball, and would you be willing to, I don't know, have a G20 uh, Climate Council instead of the Copenhagen Climate Council? Yeah, well, we shall, we shall see. But look, just to try to answer the question, a fundamental problem 
that we've, we've well, well, there's a lot of problems with the negotiations, yeah. But but there there is one real large pediment, which is the U.S. position. You know, the U.S. is the only developed country that isn't uh, in, isn't uh, didn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol. And can I just give you an example of how how difficult this is? Sure. Um, you can imagine a situation where, despite the best efforts of Barack Obama and the Democrats, we don't get a cap-and-trade bill through, and maybe this will happen sometime through the next year. Now, by that stage, this idea of national schedules is, will, will, I think, already have been fairly deeply embedded. And this, this idea has been around since May, and I should explain what the national schedules thing is. It's, essentially, it's borrowed from the trade round of negotiations, where mm -hmm. countries commit themselves to undertake a series of actions that adds up to a predetermined impact to free up trade. And it's quite a good mechanism when you think about it. The one thing it doesn't do is, is produce a cap, particularly in the climate context. It doesn't give us a cap on emissions. Mm -hmm. But for a country like India or China, it is very attractive because, you know, under a Kyoto-like mechanism, they would have to account for the whole of the national emissions, which is a mammoth task, you know, and then accept a cap, which they're just not ready to do. Under an, uh, an, a national schedules approach, they could kind of cherry pick some of the stuff they're really doing and and try to get uh, a predetermined, uh, try to get their all of their actions on a schedule to add up to a predetermined impact that the developed world would accept. Yeah, mm -hmm. the problem with that arrangement is what happens if the U.S. doesn't get the cap and trade bill through? The only option they have left then is a national schedules approach. Yeah, and if the U.S. tries to enter into an agreement under a national schedules approach. Uh, Australia will try to do the same thing, Canada will try to do the same thing, and that sort of solid block we had of commitment of countries to a cap will be dissolved. And I'd, it's, um, it's just extremely fraught. So that's just one little problem in a world of problems out there with the negotiations. And you're quite right to say that the, you know, the traditional negotiations, the UN negotiations, are hopelessly bogged down. It's the most difficult process trying to get 189 countries to agree to anything. Which is why I say that it might be easier to get 20 to agree than 120, than 190, and even if those 20 uh, have enough su sufficient weight, and it, that 20 includes India and China as well as sure. the U.S., so you have mm -hmm. the wealth and the, the developing and the developed in there, yeah. and that maybe 20 can agree where 190 can. That, that's true. Um, the, the big question is what would they agree to? We've already seen them in Pittsburgh agree to not let the temperature get above two degrees. <laughs> but they, that's... They didn't um, say how. Exactly. And the how is what... And, and honestly, I think you have to have caps to get any how. You have to have emission caps to get to that point. Where are you seeing leadership? There's been a little bit of movement recently at Korea, Mexico, individual presidents, uh, Japan, the new Japanese prime minister came in. So do you see hope in some of these uh, leaders taking unilateral measures and a little bit of competition among uh, some leaders to say we want to be a little further than the other guy on this? That is very true. And we're starting to see that's the plus side. We're starting to see some flexibility and a bit of competition going on. And what I think... Um, and this is going out on a limb a bit, but to me it seems where the, most, where the real action is is in East, East Asia. We've seen the new Japanese government, after six days of negotiation, internally agree to a 25% reduction on where it is by 2020 in emissions. That's huge. We saw South Korea earlier in the year produce the greenest economic stimulus package of any country on the planet. And we're seeing China really move now. And I think it's interesting that, the, that these three countries are also talking about developing some sort of East Asian economic zone. You know, and you can imagine the speculation has been that you know, two, three decades from now there'll be a common currency among those countries. Is, is it more than talk or is it real money in action uh, in, the, in these uh, proclamations? It's one thing to have a plan yeah, and a, sure. you know, a press release mm. or a press conference, but is there real action here? I think, I think there is. J Japan is probably too early to say. South Korea and China are definitely moving. And I, I think for the, for the reason I see this is the future. You know? And you can imagine why. I mean, with five billion people on the planet that, that um, you know, have got inadequate energy you know, delivered to them, the only way it's going to happen is through clean tech. And, and you can see the size of that market. And the opportunities. So I want to come to population in a minute, but first, um, your own country uh, had one of the first national elections that was attributed to a change of uh, leadership attributed to, to climate. Has Prime Minister Rudd kept his promises? Has he done everything that he said he would do? Has he done everything that you think he should do uh, on climate? Well, where to start? Could I start with the election? Because it was really interesting to have a national election fought on the climate issue and actually mm -hmm. won on the climate issue. Mm -hmm. And our equivalent of George Bush in Australia, Prime Minister John Howard, actually lost his own seat as a result of that election, which was a very 
Uh, it's only happened once in Australian history before and was a very strong verdict from the elect electorate that they didn't like what he was doing. Uh, Rudd came to power. The very first act he did was to ratify the Kyoto Protocol. Um, he's since been moving forward uh, to, to, with the cap-and-trade bill. But, you know, we are the world's largest exporter of coal and we still have a very substantial rump conservative government that controls the Senate, de facto, mm -hmm. through a couple of independents, mm -hmm. and it has been incredibly hard work. Um, if, you, if you want to see some really effective industry lobbying, forget about Exxon Mobil, come and see the Australian coal industry. They are shocking. <laughs> you, know. the, um, you write that some of the, the burden or some of the responsibility for coal emissions should be shared with miners as well as utilities that burn the coal. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Is there anywhere yeah. that's being done? Uh, it, it, there's nowhere that it's being done, but it makes absolute common sense because the utilities themselves are, are of a small enough scale and their profit margins are sort of regulated by government and fairly slender. It's hard for them to make the, uh, make the contributions that are required to get clean coal technology actually operating at scale in time. Um, you know, the, the, export in, the coal export industry in Australia is a $55 billion a year industry. They've got the economic might to be able to make those investments. So I've been arguing for some time that we need some sort of tariff on exports, uh, some sort of, you know, or some sort of uh, royalty at least increase on exports where the money is given directly back to the industry to secure its own future in terms of clean coal development. So give it to the Clean Coal Institute and try to get uh, to scale, not within two decades, but within... Uh, you know, perhaps five years to have some plants up and running. But a tariff on Australian coal exports would disadvantage those exporters in a global market, right? That would hurt Man. them. Look, the amount they get for their coal has gone up from, I think, the uh, thermal coal in Australia was exporting for just over $100 a tonne a couple of years ago. It went up to $300 a tonne. They've got margins coming out of every orifice on their industry body. I mean, you know, if they can't afford to pay for their own future now, then they never will, you know. And, and, and no, sorry, I think that was for coking coal. Thermal coal went up from, from 100 to 100. I forget what it was. It doubled anyway. Um, coking coal went even higher. So there's a, there's a lot of money in, in coal, and I, I can't believe that they would be competitively disadvantaged by a, a tariff uh, that would give, give them a couple of billion dollars a year or a billion dollars a year to play with. We just, you mentioned population, and we have a question from the audience. Uh, will the voices of indigenous people be heard in Copenhagen, and will the issue of human population growth be addressed? And this is something that a lot of environmentalists and energy people yeah. don't like to talk about population. That's right. Um, look, in terms of indigenous people, I think that the most organised are the, are the northern people, the Inuit and, uh, and so forth, and I, I hope that they will have some representation. I'm not quite sure what sh shape it will take, but I'll be very interested to see when I go there. The population issue is a really interesting one. Um, the UN projections, uh, population projections for 2009 were released in March this year and um, they showed again that the population is likely to, to reach 9 billion by the middle of the century. Mm -hmm. um, that's going to be a huge burden on the planet. The, I think the problem when we come to look at the climate issue and population is that, well, who can we ask to get off is the big issue because we've got an urgent problem. We can't ask anyone to get off, you know. Climate, I mean, population is one of those, it's like the Titanic, turning it around takes a long time. So the only real, uh, you know, we can, I think we need to focus on population quite rightly, but we can't expect it to help in the short term. Technology is the only solution for that. Though each person on the planet has some consumption factor, has a carbon footprint. If you could educate women, yeah, stabilize sure. population, that in the long road could have significant impact that might be less... In the long term, it is all important. In the short term, the next decade or two, uh, there's not much, not much population can add. Uh, we have some questions here, just to circle back on coal, about your thoughts about clean coal. Can it exist? And your position on, on capture and, and storage, that it may not work, but we seems to be that we got to try. We're so in such a bad situation, we got to try to see maybe it can work. I think so. And I'm not as pessimistic as some people about clean coal technologies, or I should call it properly carbon capture and storage. Um, and the reason is that there's, uh, well, there is a small plant which opened up last year in Germany run by Vattenfall, a Swedish company. Mm -hmm. It's a 25 megawatt plant. It uses a, an, an oxy-fuel technology. I don't know whether people are familiar with that, but it's a, it's a pre-combustion technology. Um, and what that, what that technology involves is 
just returning the, the flue gas back into the chamber, the, the, the combustion chamber, and adding oxygen to the, to the mm -hmm. chamber. So you get a pure stream of CO2, which you can then take off and, uh, and sequester. I think the, the key issue is going to be, will, it, will the stuff stay in the rocks and is there suitable rocks nearby? And, you know, there, there are areas where there's suitable rocks and there's already pre-existing pipeline technology that can be used. I don't think that in the longer term, you know, uh, clean coal is going to be as important as conventional coal is, but I do think um, it's needed. We've got half a million megawatts of pretty much new coal-fired power plant in China that we can't... I don't think Chinese will ever close down, you know, and we're going to have to deal with that. We're going to have to retrofit all of that. Yeah, some environmentalists say that it's easier to stop a new coal plant than to decommission one. It's easier to stop one from being yeah, built than to transition one, take the electricity away. Well, could I just say there that clean coal technologies that demand the building of new plants, rubbish, I think, in my mind. Retrofitting is what needs to happen. We need to concentrate our effort on retrofitting old plant. And that's why some of these pre-combustion technologies are so important because they look quite prospective in doing that. But that and how far does that get you in carbon emissions to retrofit? Is it just, just an incremental change or is it the sort of transformational change that some people say we need? Well, you can theoretically um, sequester 100% of the emissions from that station. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned uh, that new technologies really have to be a key part of it. Uh, however, um, in your book, Bill McKibben argues that you do not address how these technologies can scale fast enough to get the job done. And we're here in Silicon Valley where people know a lot about scaling technologies yeah. at yeah. speed. And can renewables scale at speed? I think they can. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a, a technical person in this regard. I'm not an economist. But when I look at mobile phones... I mean, 20 years ago when I worked in Papua New Guinea, remote parts of Papua New Guinea, these people didn't have anything but stone axes. I go back to those villages today and they've got mobile phones. They haven't got any electricity, but they've got a little hand crank to charge them and stuff, you know. It's amazing the way technology uh, deploys. And I think we, we have a tendency as human beings to underestimate the speed at which technologies can deploy. We always overestimate the impact on our lives, I think, as well. But... But in, uh, so I think uh, I think it can can deploy fast enough. Some people say that there's a difference between consumer technology like like mobile phones uh, that cost uh, ten dollars or a hundred dollars versus power plants that can cost millions and up to a billion for for a nuclear power plant. They're more capital intensive, and and the utility industries. Are not known for the innovation, are moving quickly, and they're heavily regulated. Yeah. Uh, so energy is not used to energy moves more slowly than a lot of other other sectors. I think that's true. All of that is true. Um, you know, the average uh, life of, of a coal-fired plant plant is something like 50 years. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of old plant around the world, and um, and not all new energy uh, is is of that monolithic type. You know. There's um, a wind is a good example, you know, where you can build smaller modules, and wind is moving very fast now. Um, also in your book, uh, Richard Branson mentions that markets abide to laws of economics while environmentalists abide by the laws of nature, and he says our economies should be revised to complement the laws of nature or integrate both. Um, so what do you think about that in terms of we have the right conceptual framework for, for market solutions and, and government intervention? Richard Branson's a really interesting guy, and he's become a bit of a friend over the, the years. And he said something really interesting to me about a couple of years ago. He said, he said you know, some people think that if a business um, looks after its employees and it makes a profit, it's a good business. He said, it actually isn't. That, that, that describes a criminal syndicate pretty well. That's what they do. It's not what modern businesses do. So modern businesses have to have an ethical base because they're so powerful and so influential on our society and our environment that without that very strong ethical base, they just, uh, they're nothing, well, nothing more potentially than a criminal syndicate. And I, I think that's a kind of interesting view from a, from a billionaire, you know? It really is. Um, and I think that's sort of what he's getting at. And I, 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 I do agree with him at the, at the, at the most fundamental level, this is an ethical and moral problem. Yeah. Question from the audience. Uh, Jim Garrison from the World Economic Forum says that it is time for the ruthless, ruthless truth and that we have a crisis of government leadership. He and others are calling for 80% emissions by 2020, uh, much more aggressive than IPCC yeah. science. And he started to, and the question is whether you think it's up to the citizens now or uh, whether the governments will really get the job done. Yeah, I've, I've um, thought about that and wondered what would happen if a decade from now it becomes absolutely evident 
that we have to have very dramatic emissions reductions. And I guess government does have the power to um, does have the power to to sort of ration electricity and so forth. It would be incredibly painful and difficult stuff, but I guess it could be done. But you know, that's not what I see when I look at government now. What I see in Australia is a, is a good example. Um, we are, we've had the most horrendous drought, we've had bushfires, we've had all sorts of climate impacts and young people are getting sick of the lack of action by government. And we've now had protests in front of some of our dirtiest and oldest coal-fired power plants with people trying to shut them down. What does the government do? It turns around and introduces legislation to increase the penalties for demonstrating in front of a coal-fired power plant to two years in prison, you know? So this, this is the government that signed onto Kyoto. Well, and it's a supposedly... state, state government, okay. same same political persuasion. But the state government runs, the, you know, is responsible for those laws. So that's and you know, I, and my question to them was, well, what is the what is the penalty for demonstrating in front of a wind plant? Can you please give us a bit of equivalency? But um, and unfortunately, that's that's the that's what's happening, and it's going to take a mass demonstrate a mass civil disobedience to break through that sort of thing. I think we started to see a little bit of that here with. James Hansen uh, testify, protesting in front of power plants, et cetera. But so far, this hasn't become a real Main Street issue yeah. uh, or, or a kitchen table issue, as the politicians always like to say, uh, as the economy and, and jobs are. And we've seen uh, climate and energy drop in relative concern and importance as the economy ha has gotten worse. So do you think it's going to take another extreme event? Or what would trigger that kind of popular um, concern, or maybe it won't ever happen. Yeah. Well, living in Australia, I can tell you, because <laughs> it's sort of like visiting Australia is a bit like visiting the future in terms of climate. You know, we, we really are having already the, the water impacts, you know, getting to the point where our, our fifth largest city, Adelaide, may not have drinking water next year, you know, and, and so people are deeply concerned, and, and the election showed it's become a political issue. And I think that will happen in future, but, you know... So what's Adelaide doing about not having any water? Is it rationing? What's, what's no one knows what to do. We are in a position where no one knows what to do. The National Water Commissioner has come up and said, well, we can't guarantee water security supply. And, you know, the government, which should have been building desalinisation plants years ago, to, you know, in, I was one of the advisors suggesting that they do that, have been very slow, so we haven't got that. Um, we haven't got water recycling in place. We haven't got any groundwater supplies. Um, they've got a, a couple of hundred days' worth of water up in small dams in the hills that they could use. But, you know, this is a catastrophe that's building, and no one knows really how to deal with it. And it's, is it true, I've read that Western or parts of Australia are sort of a harbinger for the United States in terms of the topography, climate, that what happens there will happen here? Well, I must say, when I look at your southwest, I really worry because we have actually experienced it. And what we saw in southeastern Australia was our biggest river system. So it's our, it's our Mississippi, right, basically running out of water. It, it's 80, the flows are now you know, between 50 and 80% down on what they were a decade ago. And we've got whole cities and towns that depend upon that. And you know, last year, irrigators, our farmers, got 9% of their allocation of water. So, you know, imagine that water is money to those people. So imagine having your budget slashed by 90% and not being able to see it improved. You know, we've got some of the highest farm suicide rates in the world now because these people are stuck with, uh, you know, uh, maybe a dairy farm with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of infrastructure that, you know, no one wants and is, is, is uh, you know, mortgaged up to the hilt with the bank. And so the, the impacts are very real. And in the southwest of this country, you know, where you've got those large cities in a very arid environment, dependent upon, uh, you know, groundwater and, and um, a few river systems, I can just see the same sort of problem emerging. And the thing about Australia is the computer models were telling us we didn't need to worry about these sort of impacts for another 70 or 80 years, but we're seeing them now. Do people make the, the connection with the, the causal connection with, with climate, or do, is there still debate about whether it's natural patterns, et cetera? Well, look, there is some debate, but most people accept the reality. I mean, you, you don't have to do much. You've just got to watch the weather chat and watch the uh, weather report on television because you can see the rain still falling about 300 kilometres or 400 kilometres to the south over the Southern Ocean. And, you know, it makes sense. In a warming world, the tropics expand and the, the, the temperate zones contract, you know, and that's just what's happened to us. Uh, Australia, you mentioned, is a coal exporter, also a grain exporter, and I believe that, that some of the drought affected global commodity prices, and actually I remember we had rationing of rice at Costco in California a couple of years ago, and, and I mentioned Lester Brown. He talks a lot about that, about how water scarcity will lead to uh, upward pressure on food prices in the commodity markets. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, we have. We've had uh, dramatic rises in the price of food. 
um, particularly anything from irrigation. And what, what has been very surprising with this is that the dry land agriculture, so the broad acre wheat stuff, has been reasonably robust. It's the irrigated systems that have suffered. The reason for that is that although we've only suffered a 20% decline in rainfall on average, um, because of warmer soils and higher evaporation rates, that has translated into an, about an 80% decline in stream flow through much of the basin. So, um, you know, the, the irrigated areas are, are really suffering much more than the dry land stuff. Let's let's mention, uh, we, we touched a little bit on, on Copenhagen in, in the beginning. Um, and what do you think is going to, what's going to happen there? Is this going to be an event? You mentioned that uh, apparently President Obama is not going to go. Um, but what, what do you think we can reasonably expect from, from the Copenhagen? I was, well, until um, I heard Todd Stern yesterday say that uh, it was very unlikely that President Obama was going to go, I was hopeful that we would have at least heads of government there and they would agree on a very broad and non-specific sort of agreement, you know, just with some principles mm -hmm. laid out, which would then be filled in later. Uh, without the President there, I, I don't know what we're going to get. I'm, I, it's, it's not clear to me what's going to happen at these meetings now. Um, is that the end of the UN process? Does the UN process then, then re I mean, I think Mexico is uh, scheduled to uh, host the next conference of parties uh, in 2010. Yeah. Uh, or has, has the UN process kind of run its ground? And, and there are some back, chatter, back channel talk now about another political deal or some, mm -hmm. some other formula mm -hmm. because this isn't going fast enough. Well, people, you know, the, 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 one of the things I hear from people is that the era of treaties is over. The treaties are now out of favour for one reason or another, partly because the US finds it very difficult to ratify them, get those 67 votes in the Senate to ratify you know, treaties. So um, I, I don't think anyone knows is the really absolute honest answer. But one thing I do know is that if we do have a failure at Copenhagen, I think it is going to be incredibly difficult to summon the, um, the momentum again to continue in, in Mexico. I mean, you can imagine the number of businesses that have invested in this, you know, that have a lot of skin in the game that potentially will lose, will lose that if, if these negotiations have a catastrophic failure. And the politicians as well. I mean, you know, I, I, it's hard to imagine them all getting off the ground and dusting themselves off and starting again. We have a couple of questions here about cap-and-trade versus a tax and whether a tax might then come back into favour if, if cap-and-trade doesn't, doesn't make it this go around. Well, look, taxes are fine, but they don't give you a cap. That's the big problem. You can't guarantee you're going to cap emissions. Um, and you, you know, have to know how high to put the tax to get the desired environmental well, outcome. But even so, with, with price fluctuations and everything else, you cannot guarantee a cap on emissions with a, with a tax. You can have a probabilistic model that will give you something, but taking that into an international round of negotiations where you're trying to actually horse trade on you know, where people are going to be is really tough. And I, I just think a, the cap-and-trade system, it's not sufficient to deal with climate change, but it's absolutely necessary to deal with it. You have to have that when you come to negotiating with other parties, you have to have a sense of what your emissions is going to add up to, you know, how big the cut is you're going to make. So you're in the camp that says it's not perfect, it's not pretty, but it's kind of the best horse we've got. Well, it's one, it's, it's one tool in the tool shed, the way I look at it, yeah. and it's a critical one for the international negotiations. You know, the, if, if, if the US has to rely on EPA regulation and, say, impose fuel efficiency standards on coal-fired power plants, that, that may well have an impact. Um, but it won't give you that cap, you know. Our guest at Climate One today is Tim Flannery, chair of the Copenhagen Climate Council. I'm Greg Dalton, and this is Climate One. Uh, another question from the audience. Please talk to the very controversial issue of geoengineering and its role in helping solve major climate issues. Okay. Um, I do talk about geoengineering in the, at the very last bit of the book there, and uh, the way I see the issue is that... Um, when we think about geoengineering, um, we've, we've got to look at it in context and the sort of situation that we might deploy it. And the sort of situation I can imagine deploying geoengineering in is if we're in a world that has already had substantial climate impacts and there is something else big looming, say a collapse of the Greenland ice cap or the West Antarctic ice sheet or something like that. And in that situation, it's possible that we, we'd want to play that card, yeah? And 
for a geoengineering proposal to actually be effective there, you have to be deploying something with a pre-existing technological platform. You can't be kind of thinking about putting mirrors in space because you, you won't, wouldn't be able to do it quick enough to avert the, you know, the melting of the ice cap. So the one proposal that actually adds up in that situation is Paul Crutzen's idea of putting sulphur into the jet fuel. You know. right. And look, we've spent decades trying to get sulphur out of fuel, so it seems counterintuitive, but this is the idea. And once you get the sulphur up into the stratosphere, it'll sort of brown off the earth. You know, it'll, it'll stop sunlight getting to the surface of the planet create a haze, a bit like, I guess, what you see over Beijing, you know, I used to see over Beijing. Um, That's bad news for solar investors, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah. it is. It is indeed bad news for solar investors. Um, but, you know, and that's, it's interesting. That's one of the kind of uh, unintended consequences of that sort of approach. But we're at the moment, in geoengineering terms, where we don't have enough scientific information about what the full impacts of these proposals would be. And my position has been that we need to start talking about them now, we need to start researching about them, but we also should hope that we never have to deploy them. How about cool roofs? Could that be a partial solution? Not on the same scale. Sure, it could. I mean, just changing Earth's albedo. There's a lot of roof space on the planet, and I guess changing the albedo by, you know, painting them white has an impact. I've, I've done that with my house, by the way. I bought that special paint and painted the roof white just because it's a simple thing you can do that hopefully has an impact. The chair of the, well, commissioner of the California Energy Commission, Art Rosenfeld, is big on that and has done a lot of research on it. We just did flip the, the roofs from black to white and how that would change some things. Okay. Uh, another question from the audience. During World War II, Americans and many other countries were called upon to significantly change their lifestyles and contribute to the war effort. They came through in a big way. Why aren't we being asked to make these sacrifices? What needs to happen to demonstrate the need for sacrifice? Well, that's the really big question. That's the one that almost is never asked. So whoever asked that, thank you. Um, and I, I, I look at that in terms of the particularly uh, sustainability, the future sustainability of our planet. You know, if we want to get through this crisis and we want to uh, create a more stable Earth, we're going to have to create prosperity in developing countries, you know. And one thing we're going to have to do is increase Earth's productivity. And there's a bit in the book about how that might be done. But the other thing that has to happen is to manage people's expectations of what a good life is, you know. And when you look at the way we live today, we are incredibly wasteful. And we also spend a lot of money really poorly, I think. Um, it's, it's interesting to me, you, you see wealthy people who collect art or collect something, which is fine, but it's sort of like a displacement activity to me for the real game, you know. You've got enough money to make your life comfortable. It would be great to see us do something more productive with that extra cash, you know. And I think managing expectations is a little bit about asking that question about what is enough, you know. But the question about why people don't, uh, you know, why we're not asking that question politically amazes me. I mean, John F. Kennedy asked it, didn't he? Not, he asked not, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And that's what I'd be asking myself. But no politicians ask sacrifice, and, and there's a lot of marketing, that greenwashing, that being green is easy. It's just these tips, these tips, it's painful, and you can ha basically have it all be green and still be a voracious consumer and maintain an ever-ascending quality of material life, mm. and there's never any trade-off or sacrifice. And, but is it actually ascending? Is it ascending, this quality of life of ours? I would sort of debate that point. I think if you look at it and think about well, it. I mean, Bill McKibben write, uh, writes in, in Deep Economy about how uh, as incomes have gone up, levels of self-reported levels of fulfillment and happiness have gone down. Yeah. Uh, so he questions that. But most, yeah. see, I see it as a more a deeper philosophical issue, and there is a, a strong libertarian streak in both Australia and the United States that opposes government and opposes government intervention um, and that sees the individual as being self-sufficient despite the transparent stupidity of that sort of view you know, and, and won't, won't invest in what, what are required a communal responses. You know? And I think that that sort of uh, ideology needs to pass somehow. We need to get beyond that. It's a sort of a relic of the frontier. You know, it's no longer relevant. It's self-evident that it's no longer relevant in the modern world. So I see it as much ideological as sort of people worrying about what's sufficient as well. I think it's When's the last time you had a big steak or a hamburger? I had a steak. Now, when was it? Now, in Canada. And I felt really bad about it, but I felt like I needed it. <laughs> I was in Canada about a week ago. And I was, the worst thing was I was being interviewed by a journalist on this, <laughs> this new book. And, and she was asking me about Peter Singer's contribution, you know, about the, the meat issue. And I felt bad, but I was so hungry. 
<laughs> I, I, thought, I, thought, I thought I'll do my penance later. You're, you're human, and we're all human. <laughs> well, I know. But you do write a lot about how the beef and methane yeah, sure. is a really bad deal. I do. And, and look, I, the, what I talk about in the book is the need for a sustainabilitarian diet, right? A diet, food that's good for us and good for the planet. Yeah, and you, you can produce that sort of food in many different ways. And a lot of vegetarians, for example, don't really ask what's good for the planet. Some do, but some don't. And in Australia, just the act of eating bread is a very bad thing to do because, it, you know, for every kilogram of bread we produce in our country, we lose seven kilograms of topsoil with a lot of carbon in it, you know? So I, whatever food I buy, it's easier when you're home. But when you're home, you can actually do a bit of research on what, where your food's coming from. And I've got a butcher who deals with people who grow cattle in a very sustainable way, and I'm happy to eat that sort of meat, you know. I'm not happy to eat chicken out of a factory farm or, or beef out of a feedlot here in the United States, which is why I try to minimise my food, my meat intake in this country, because I can't control it. But I'm aware that a lot of the vegetables I eat are probably not that great either in this country. So sustainabilitarian diets where it's all that for me. Right. I mean, most people are probably familiar with Michael Pollan, and, and he's not doesn't fall into the righteous vegetarian or righteous yeah. liberal uh, thing. He's like the point about sustainability and diversity of foods as long as they're, they're, uh, they're naturally raised. Yeah. Um, who are some of your environmental heroes? Well, the guy that I love the most really is Sir David Attenborough, you know, mm. and... I love him for a particular reason. He, he's hardly ever talked about the environment in all the times he's done his shows, you know. But when he, when he produces his documentaries, he lets nature speak. He takes a back seat and lets us see the glories of nature. And I defy anyone to come away from one of his documentaries without thinking that this is a planet that's really worth saving and we have to act to save it. So he does it in a really understated way, and he's just a great man. Jared Diamond as well, uh, David Suzuki, you know, they're all extraordinary people who've done so much, I think, uh, for, for the environment. How about political leaders? What political leaders do you see out there that are taking risks, making changes, going beyond uh, the safe zone and, and leadership on this issue? Well, I kind of fond of Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> A long time ago, I know. know. He lived a low-carbon lifestyle. He did. He had a great saying, actually, still relevant today, about uh, he went to Great Britain at one stage, you know, and was asked in a rather superior way by a British journalist uh, what he thought about the idea of English civilization. And uh, Gandhi just said, oh, I think it would be a very good idea. (laughs) Still (laughs) right So, so, uh, but, you know... We're short of really great leaders in the modern era, and I'm not quite sure why. Um, something has changed about the way we do it. And you know what I think part of it is, is the sort of institutionalisation of jobs. Um, it used to be the case that people would come out of a career somewhere else and become a politician for a while and then maybe go on to something else. Um, as we've become institutionalised in these uh, various career paths, I guess politicians see that their whole life is actually about being a politician. So, and that makes them less brave than they might otherwise be. Um, it's really hard to, put, to look around the world today and see someone and point to someone who is a great, a great leader in the environmental area. I mean, t- t- Tony Blair, for all his faults, was, was pretty good in that, that regard, you know. Um, but none of them are perfect. How good do you think President Obama's doing so far? Well, I just think I was in uh, New York for the inauguration and I walked down the street afterwards and saw these young black men going, yay, you know. And I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. I really did. I think it it has hopefully, and maybe I'm an eternal optimist, I think it may have changed democracy forever because those young disempowered people, you know, black people and others, I think they'll vote from now on. You know, they, can, they see it can be done, you know. Um, and also the fact that he used the internet to raise his money really freed him from the, 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 the lobby, lobbyists, you know. And I, that model, if, if at the next uh, Senate election and House election we see more people raising funds that way and getting away from large donations, I reckon the guy will have changed the world, you know. Um, you know. I think there's probably a lot of people here who are disappointed he hasn't moved faster, but... He's not Superman. He's just, you know, he's just the president. And the, it's symptomatic, isn't it, that the guy works in a country where he can uh, take the country to war, and that's basically like acting as a criminal syndicate against people who aren't franchised in your country. He can do that, but he can't rein in emissions. It says something about the system we live under, I suppose. 
we've come to the point with about one last question. I'd like to ask you, uh, as a scientist, there's been some discussion lately about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as a mechanism for getting science out into the public domain as, as the voice of science and whether they've uh, – some people think it's been politicized. Other think, people think they've been so cautious that they've actually underestimated the true uh, magnitude of what's going on. So what do you think about the role of science and, and particularly the IPCC as a voice going forward for scientists? No, I'm a very strong supporter of the IPCC. Uh, it is uh, an organisation that works by a method that is hardly scientific consensus. You know, they've got to agree to everything that's written and that's not the way good science is done. But in terms of science which is capable of informing policy, it's hard to imagine a better model. You know, what they say has all of the credibility that any group of scientists could have because it is that consensus-driven model. It's very carefully reviewed and so forth. And you, you'll hear some right-wing idiots in the media uh, say that this is all a conspiracy or that you can't believe what they say, but just look at what they write. I mean, and look at the credibility they have with governments worldwide and you understand why it's an important institution. I'd like to end on a personal note, just mentioning that two years ago, I told Tim earlier that I, I went on a, an expedition in the Russian Arctic on an icebreaker uh, with some members from the Commonwealth Club and experts from Cal and MIT and others, and we walked on the melting tundra and saw polar bears on ice floes and flew in helicopters. And when I was out there on that Russian icebreaker, I had one book that I read, and it was The Weathermakers. So that was part of uh, changing my life, and I came back and then founded Climate One, this leadership dialogue. So it's particularly a pleasure to have you here today, Tim, and thanks for your comments here at Climate One. Thank you very much. Our thanks to Tim Flannery, chairman of the Copenhagen Climate Council, for his remarks here today at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One. Now we're adjourned. Thank you.